This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio. Happy 2021. I'm Samuel Mann. The show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher, who's not here tonight because I am in Fakatani. I'm in the living room of Mawira Karatai. I'm going to say welcome, Mawira. <laughs> welcome to you, Sam. Welcome to my living room. How was your summer? It, it's been really good, actually. Um, we have had... Well, this is our first summer in our new house for myself and my 11-year-old son, Jack. And... Um, there's just been it's sort of come after a year of so much change it's been nice just to stop and rest and so I guess it's been a really restful time with um, lots of thinking time lots of space and I've enjoyed that how was yours it was good it was good lots of family things lots of lots of running around family things or driving around family things getting to to places it was was, but it was it's a it's a it's a fun summer a a fun kiwi summer it had a kind of a different feeling to it didn't it it really has it's been neat um with a lot of my friends have gone camping i don't know how many i've lost count of how many of my friends have bought caravans uh and have gone tripping tripping around the place and uh i don't know i think it's it feels a bit like we've gone back to the 70s you know, where you just stayed reasonably local and you had a lot of friends over and you had a caravan and you went to the beach. and It's been kind of nice, actually. Maybe we will get the reset that we talked about. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that be nice? We just need the social reset to go with it. And you've been writing. Yes, I'm writing. Um, I'm in the last part of my Doctorate of Professional Practice with Otago Politic, following on from a graduate diploma, a master's and a Bachelor of Applied Management all done with OP. So I'll have the full set by the time I finish <laughs> this. <laughs> and, uh, and and I've loved the whole journey. 15 years of tertiary study um, is about to come to an end. Uh, and the, the scary part of it is what do you do with all that time when for 15 years you've you've put a significant amount of your leisure time into studying? How do you how do you feel that time after that I don't know that's kind of it actually is it it scares me a bit what will I do with all that time I don't think you'll be able to stop because I think the point of it is it sets you up with a a way of thinking a curiosity a a critical conversation that that isn't going to go away no you become a lifelong learner that's kind of the point yeah I don't think there won't there won't be a stop I know that um it's funny I was having a coffee with a friend of mine this morning and she said the weird thing for her has been talking to me over these last three years and she thought that I was lost and that I didn't know what I was writing about and she was worried that I kept changing my mind 
and it was neat to be able to explain to her that evolution in my thinking and how actually the problem would have been as if I hadn't changed my mind and I hadn't um, changed my position on things, that would have indicated a problem. Uh, so it was quite neat to see that from her point of view, to, for, for someone outside of my study group to see the change in, in who I am as a human. I liked that, actually. Transformation. That's interesting, that seeing change not as a being lost, but as a part of progress, because it's similar to sort of the, the idea of science, isn't it? People criticise science. You know, you told us to wear masks. Now he didn't tell us to wear masks, or you didn't know what this was. A... No, we're developing the understanding. That That's how it works. Exactly. Yeah, I wish people looked at the world a bit more that way. Um, and and I, I, science is science is such a huge part of my life, and I am I'm in awe of all scientists and the amazing work that they do in helping us to achieve understanding and also to keep us safe. I mean, crikey, look at how quickly they adapted a vaccine so that it would keep us safe from coronavirus. And, uh, you know, that that's some pretty stellar work by some pretty clever people who have committed their whole lives to that pathway. Uh, and we should be inspired by that commitment they've made. And and I love that science is not finite. There's, And I often think that if science asks why and challenges and challenges and challenges, and, and as soon as we stop challenging, then we have indoctrination, I think. So, yeah, there's a, like a line where we stop challenging. Well, that means we've become indoctrinated into a way of thinking and we maybe we stop growing and maybe that's when ideas become unsafe, when it's no longer okay to question. But how do we explain to people the limits of that questioning? We want people to take the vaccine. Mm, we do. So we want people to be critical, but we don't want people to be critical in a is it an irrational way yeah that's education so absolutely we should be critical and and there are there's no doubt in my mind that this vaccine is safe but I know that because I educated myself on it and I understood it and I didn't educate myself by Facebook meme I educated myself by um, actually reading some of the research that's been done and under and actually learning how vaccines work and so rather than it's really easy to mock people who have that position of um, of just questioning for the sake of questioning and I'm seeing that a lot at the moment in some of my networks but instead what we should be doing is teaching those people how to think critically how to disseminate how to properly investigate uh, and and give them the skills that they need to be able to understand so that when they're questioning it's to grow their understanding not to um, put them more into the indoctrination space. I am going to take the first of your music choices. Four non-blondes, what's going on? Why this one? Um, I think it's just one of those songs that you need to play really loud uh, and it, it's just a real, I find it to be a super energising song.
attention I realized quickly when I knew I should That the world was made up of this brotherhood of man For whatever that means Into a crisis Okay, so walk me through the title. Okay, so um, I'm a social justice educator. 
model of unconditional positive regard which was a model of professional practice um, that was quite common in psychology in sort of the 1980s and um, you Sam um, made me dig deep into that to see what the components of it were what actually makes unconditional positive regard work and um, what I came up with was uh, choice as being a main part of it because without choice if you don't have the ability to make real choice, then how can you make the choice to have regard for somebody? Um, and the other part of that was empathy, because you actually have to give a damn. And if you don't give a damn, then you're never going to care about having positive regard for someone. Um, and I, I was pretty happy with that. And you said to me, OK, so what? Uh, what's, what's the thing that makes both of those work? And it, it took a while and a lot of thinking. And I actually came to the most simple of ideas, which is imagination. And without imagination, we, we can't make enduring choice. Life happens to us, I think, if we can't make choices. And also without imagination we can't empathise because the whole the whole notion of empathy is built on being able to understand the position of others. Uh, so uh, imagination is, is the key part of that. Uh, the, the alarming part that's come out of all of this thinking and learning and, and observing of the world is um, that I've definitely noticed that uh, imagination is not what it used to be like we used to be imaginative we used to be problem solvers we used to um, be much more critical in our thinking uh, our observations of the world were deeper I think we thought for ourselves more but what my observation especially in this generation of kids coming through at the moment is they think for themselves less um their influences are not the relationships that we used to have like I was heavily influenced by my grandparents by a couple of my teachers by some of my parents friends um, and those the influence was trust based and, and due to the depth of the relationship and my observation of the character of the people and therefore what they had to say meant something but our kids their relationships fleeting they're online um, they're, they're influenced by YouTubers who they don't know at all and they lack that ability to be critical thinking uh, and to discern if this is you know is this information right is it safe is it something that I can trust um or is this doing me harm? Uh, and and what's the um, what does the person gain from giving me this information? And because the parents, what I've noticed, the other thing I've noticed is that a lot of the parents of the kids in my life don't actually understand their children's online life. They don't understand the extent to which their kids are being influenced by YouTubers um, and and other online influencers. And that kind of alarms me as well. You know, there's a lot to be worried about at the moment, actually, Sam. But it's not just uh, railing against the internet, against social media, because there are lots of good things that come from that. Yep, I, and absolutely I agree with that. And actually I've got no issue even with the false information that's on social media, um, because all information has got value in some way or another. But what I have an issue with is the, um, the lack of direction and education that's not enabling our kids to be discerning with what they hear of what they hear. That's what my biggest issue is, is that our kids are receiving information and they have no discernment. 
they will regurgitate information immediately and state it as fact. Um, they don't. We're not teaching them how to research properly. We're not teaching them how to think think, think things through in a critical way. But aren't we teaching them information literacy as, as part of school? Um, yep, I think we are. But even, okay, for example, the other day I was sitting in uh, my son's classroom and all of the kids had done something called a passion project. And I was sitting there looking at Jack's passion project and reading the information that he'd presented on um, on Japanese cars. He loves uh, 1980s Japanese cars. And I said to him, where did you get the information from? And he said, from the internet. And I said, where from the internet? And he said, I don't know. And I said to him, so if you don't know, now I don't know, that's two of us who have now got this information, if we could share these as facts, but how do we know that that's accurate information? How can we go back and check it if you haven't provided you know, the information on where you got it from? And so these are 11-year-olds going into intermediate in a digital age who don't understand how to reference. That bothers me. I think as, as soon as we start telling kids to go to the internet for information, we also need to teach them about referencing side by side with that. You talked about the need for people to give a damn. Yes. Why do you give a damn? Oh, there's a question. I don't think, well, it's like asking a centipede how it walks. It's just how it does things. I give a damn because I do. I don't, I don't know how not to. That's a, that's a, never actually asked myself, why do I give a damn? I actually don't know. It's just who I am as a human. There's a section in your thesis that says motivation. Mm, you mo- have to write something there. Oh. <laughs> my motivation is, I think, to sound an alarm a little bit uh, and also to provide a way forward for people. Uh, I've got this this plan that I've had for the last 15 years. So 15 years ago, I, I entered into tertiary education because I had gone to a local school and asked them if I could start a little program in the school called What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? And they said to me, you have to go to the ministry. So I went to the ministry and they said, "Where's your P- what's your PhD? And I'm, uh, I don't have one. What's your master's? I uh, don't have one. I <laughs> don't even have a degree at that point. So I entered tertiary education with a view to getting a doctorate so that I could then go back to the ministry and say, OK, I've got the piece of paper you wanted. Now I'd like to run this program. And the point, point of the program back then, even before we had mass screen addiction and all the, all the other problems that we have now with um, information overload, I guess, in a sense, um, and and a lot of family disconnection and family dysfunction um, the the point was to run this program and teach kids how to think themselves into a future. And I, cu- I couldn't do that then, and now I hope that I will be able to, and I hope that from that will come the sort of maybe a change to the problems that we're having in our community right now. So that's my motivation. The notion of a tree is important. Yep. Because we talk about whakapapa. Hmm in terms of people's family history, but also their own personal career history can be seen um, in that way. I also like the story of the tree whose name I've forgotten. Oh, Takitakiro, the Millennium Tree, is a 2,500-year-old Pūriri tree that's located in the Hukataya Domain about 40 minutes east of here. It's a beautiful place. Last time Sam was up here, I took him uh, for a drive out there and we went to see Takitakiro. Definitely worth entering into a search and, and having a look at it. 
And there's a really interesting book that somebody's written about it, isn't there? Yep, there is. So the Millennium Tree book is really neat. Um, it's written in two parts. On the right-hand side page, on the in- internal page of the book, you'll see um, the history of the tree. So from um, the, a seed that blew on the wind that lay, that lay on the ground and then leaf litter was dropped on top of it and eventually it started to grow roots and the roots spread into the ground and the entire history of the tree, the tree's first encounter with humans, um, how that tree was used by the Whakatohia people to hide the bones of their ancestors to protect the bones from uh, other tribes they were warring with uh, uh, all the way through to today and on the opposite side, on the left side of the page is what was happening in the world at each of those stages so two and a half thousand years ago the um, the birth of the Buddha uh, and the um, different wars that were happening uh, different stages in human evolution uh, and social evolution the Black Plague all of those things that have happened in the world uh, right up until today as well um, and, and those two stories are told side by side in the book The Millennium Tree there's something in that dual storytelling because I wonder if that's the uh, your thesis is a compilation of individual stories, individual encounters and experiences and a sort of a theoretical academic exploration of that mm. yep, how do you see those two things playing together? Um, I think that um, the academic side of things is um, it, meets an, it meets a requirement uh, it adds validity I suppose to my work and my position whereas the stories is real life these are real life things actually um the way i'm going to do it is a uh, fictionalized ethnography it's called so taking stories and fictionalizing them so that it protects people uh and um tells the tells stories that others will be able to relate to and often when we pick up an academic work, we start reading it and our eyes glaze, glaze over and we find ourselves sleeping. Wonderful sleeping pills they are, some of them. Um, but I don't want my work to be like that. I'm not that kind of person. I, I want my work to be approachable. I want it to have value and I want people to be able to relate to it. Um, so the, I don't want to use academic speak. Uh, I, I want it to be readily accessible for everybody. Otherwise, what's the point? So, and stories are a really good way of engaging people. And so each of your chapters is a story or a collection of stories with a woven through it academic explanation. Yes, that's a perfect description. If we go back to the unconditional positive regard, Mm -hmm. that's developed as a, a practice in psychology. Yep, by Rogers. For, as, as part of working with individuals mm-hmm. and what you're looking at is saying it can be used as a more a guiding principle yeah well I think actually if we applied unconditional positive regard more in education uh, and in justice and in health we would be looking for things that are right with people instead of looking for things that are wrong with them and at the moment, it feels like humanity is bruised and battered for so many things, particularly here in the eastern Bay of Plenty, um, or even the wider Bay of Plenty. Sam and I went for a drive through um, the centre of Tauranga yesterday, and it was like a ghost town, um, what had been a, a thriving, bustling, wonderful city that had everything. Um, maybe one in every four shops had someone in them, and the rest were, were just closed up with newspaper over the windows, and it was really sad 
and maybe a reflection of what's happening in that community. But we we are bruised. We've had Fakari and those lives lost. We've had the Edgecombe floods. We've had COVID. We've had the loss of tourism. As a community, we're bruised, and it's really easy to just keep focusing on the negative. And the more negative you feel, the more inclined you are to look for negativity in others. And what I'm saying is actually we need to start really focusing on the positive in each other. When we start doing that, we'll start seeing more positive in our community as well. We've just Everything just feels a bit broken right now. You had an experience with the health system. Yes. And I'm thinking about... Yes, Jack's... Jack's birth certificate. Yeah. Uh, so, shall I tell that yeah, story? Yeah, let's tell that story. So, uh, Jack needed to go and see a doctor at the hospital, not for anything serious, just a little dude thing. And he, um, we went to see the GP. The GP sent a letter of referral to the hospital. Um, this is Jack's GP that he's had his whole life. He was born in our living room in our, in our last house, and he's only had that GP. He's only moved once in his life, um, been at the same school all through his schooling, uh, has been to the hospital several times for various things, trying to break things, falling off mountain bikes, what have you. Um, so we got a letter from the hospital saying, thank you for the referral from your GP in order for us to make an appointment for you we must first have evidence of your child's birth oh he needs to have uh, sorry evidence of his citizenship and um, they asked that I take a birth certificate or passport down to the hospital at which time they would then book him for an appointment so basically if you weren't able if you were unable to provide evidence of your child's citizenship you were not even allowed to book an appointment they also gave an alternative if you didn't want to provide that evidence, which was to go and see a private doctor. So I called them and I said, this doesn't make any sense. You've sent me a letter with his NHI number, his health his health number on it. Um, he's been to the hospital before. I don't understand why you're asking for this information. And we there was a lot of debate about it and I ended up uh, contacting a friend of mine who uh, sits on the DHB and talking about it with him. He then contacted the board chair and the CE of the hospital, and neither of them knew anything about it. But apparently it is actually a legislated problem at a national level, uh, and, uh, and it creates a massive barrier to health for so many of our people. So if you think about, um, especially, well, I mean, I live here in the Eastern Bay, and we have got quite a few seriously remote communities. Um, and in those remote rural communities, we have high levels of deprivation. So the idea of having to take a birth certificate to the hospital just to be able to make the appointment or have access to Wi-Fi so you, and, a, and a smart device so you can take a photo of the birth certificate and email it, those are significant boundaries that will actually literally prevent those families from having engagement with health. So how do you approach... Clearly, you're taking an, an activist lens yes to to this <laughs> like everything in my life <laughs> but how do you see how are you taking that as a positive thing um well the positive thing is um the my the positive from my experience is that it's identified that there's a problem and i believe it's a problem that i can help to fix uh, so sometimes that the problem the problem might be negative, but our response to it can be positive. And in this case, my positive response to it is to try and make sure that this never happens to another family and that no child is um, presented with that barrier to their wellness. The people that brought that in, the people that sent you that letter, aren't being mean or nasty. No, nope, not at all. 
and so if we're looking at that from a positive view or a strengths-based view, they are doing what from your perspective? All they're doing is they've made a decision based on the fact that they're trying to reduce the spending in their hospital. So in, if someone is not a citizen um, or a resident, if, if they're not you know, living here in New Zealand as a, as a permanently with some sort of visa or born here, um, if they're just visiting, then there's no funding from the government for their health care. Unless there's an accident, then they're funded by ACC. So what they're trying to do is make sure that everyone they're treating is actually funded for treatment. Um, and I get that. I totally understand that position. But there are better ways to do that. That information already existed. And from what I can understand, that information was already accessible by them. They just chose not to take that pathway. Instead, they, have, they haven't, I don't think they've thought it through. I think that there's a high likelihood that the person who made that decision has come from a position of privilege where that sort of barrier has never existed in their life. So simply, have, they haven't thought it through. So by by bringing it to, to people's attention and being able to, faci- to facilitate that change, we can prevent it becoming a, a problem for others. So if you're taking an unconditional positive regard approach to solving that problem, what guidance does that give you to to dealing with that? Um, it makes me it makes me look for understanding first and foremost. What is the problem and how has the problem occurred and what can be done to fix it? So it actually makes me stop and look. So I could have just gone and rung the media and had a, and made it into a big drama without actually gaining any understanding. That wouldn't have been helpful. So it, what unconditional positive regard does is it ensures that the, any actions that you take and any reactions that you have are actually helpful and not just creating even more barriers. So the positive in unconditional positive regard. So unconditional positive regard, a part, big part of your argument is that we can apply that wider than the sort of the, the original bounds of being the, you know, the counselling couch. Yep. And I think that the unconditional is relatively easy to understand. Do you want to have a shot at that? Um, unconditional means that you, it, it's that full acceptance. I accept that there are some really negative parts to this, but that's not where my focus is. My focus is on what is the positive, what is the positive thing that can be done. How can I fix this by focusing on, on the things that I can fix about it? I cannot go to the person who made that decision and say, take back what you've done can't do that but I can find the the person who has the ability to change it so that it doesn't become a problem for others okay so the positive bit that's the positive bit no. so 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 tell me that the positive doesn't just mean doolally deluded positive it's no. it's it's still got elements of criticality in it it does and it's thinking thing I think it the the positive bit is the problem solving bit it's looking for the change that you can facilitate uh, there's a movie uh, starring Mel Gibson, one of my favourite movies called We Were Soldiers, and uh, in it he was um, the I don't know it was I think it's based on a, a true story, but he was training these soldiers to jump out of helicopters during one of the conflicts in Asia, and he said three strikes and you are not out. There is always something else you can do, and I guess I I take that approach to problem solving. There's we just have to keep on attacking it from every position that we can until we find a solution that works and that's also an incredible positive. So you talk about applying this positivity in a whole lot of different contexts in governance contexts in um, problems with environmental problems uh, and so on 
what do those sorts of things have in common? Um, I think that there, there are several things. Awareness, a willingness to be aware, the willingness to actually look to see what the problem is. Um, and that's the that's the positive that's the main part of the positive regard is that willingness, um, personal responsibility to actually want to be part of facilitating change. But I think also leadership has a big part in that too because we really facilitate change um, in a silo. Uh, when we want to make change happen, we need to bring others with us on that journey. So the way that we communicate our ideas uh, and the way that we motivate others to join with us or the ability to identify those who have that you know that common way of thinking those are really important parts of that as well leadership in terms of exploring that positive but not deluded you because it's 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 somewhat of a a right right problem or a wrong wrong kind of problem it's it's not a nice and simple this is bad this is good no nope. but you explore social media mm. as the modern day zoo mm. So the modern days, actually, so so few people know about the um, human zoos that used to exist at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. They were a real thing uh, where uh, where uh, some people went to places like the Congo and uh, picked up families of native people and brought them uh, into Europe with their huts that they destroyed <laughs> to pick them up and bring them as well and recreated their village life in these big cages um, which were literally human zoos uh, that were there for the entertainment of others and I kind of see social media as being a bit like that like um, the, you know the, the cages Facebook and Instagram and, and places like that and we all exist within the cage for other people to observe us and just like the human zoos people were abused and uh, and treated really badly, you know, grown men being offered bananas and, and treated like apes. Uh, it, it was pretty horrific, and they were uh, punished for not being uh, communicating enough, for talking enough when there were, you know, visitors around and things like that. And social media can be a lot like that. Um, so, yeah, I really do feel like what social media has become is a modern-day human zoo. And I don't think that that was the intent of it. I don't think it was started to be that. I don't think it was started to make us a captive audience to be sold to. Um, there's a TV show that's uh, on Netflix at the moment, uh, and one of the lines from it actually has, has come from um, something else uh, in the 1950s. But the, the main part of it was, if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product. So we've become a captive audience in social media um, inside this cage so that others can uh, watch us or, or we can watch others. Uh, and our captivity makes us ideal for being sold to, so our information is sold to other people so that they can um, you know, try and sell their products and their services and what have you. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting space. Is that how you get to the myth of choice? Yeah, choice is a funny one. And, and actually, what is choice really in that context? If you're not on social media, are you even real at the moment? Like, I'm, I've spoken to people, oh, uh, someone that we're interviewing for our other show, Blowing Bubbles. Um, uh, we, we were talking to him, getting him ready for the interview that we'll do uh, later on in the week. 
and I asked him if he was on Messenger, and he said, what's that? And I was shocked. <laughs> like, I kind of didn't really expect him to be on Facebook, because of you know he's that that sort of generation and he's a he's a farmer and I and and probably the least likely to be on Facebook but he's also a politician so perhaps the most likely um but he um but for him not to know what messenger was I I actually gasped ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's our world isn't it so you're you're a social pariah if you don't if you're not connected in some way like oh my god well, how do I speak to you if you're not connected there are you even real so. You have a chapter called, Do I Have a Choice Really? Yeah, Do I Have a Choice Really? How do you engage with the world if you're not willing to be in the zoo? You, you have talked about how a lot of the, the the issues that people get into are an unawareness, I think, of the choices that they have available to them. In order for us to be able to make real choice, we must first be able to think ourselves into a future. So, and that future might be a minute from now, it might be 10 years from now, but that is a skill that we learn, it's not a thing that we're born with. And if nobody's modelled to, uh, okay, so we're really good, like look at this from a social level. The last time you read the newspaper or an article online um, where somebody had done something really bad and they were going through the court process and you thought to yourself, well they had a choice to do that. My question is, did they actually really have a choice? And and I think that if you actually delved into the past of that person, it's highly likely that life just happened to them and they were never taught those basic skills on how to make real choice in their lives. Real choice is you being able to position yourself where you are right at this moment and think about what your life will be like in five minutes or ten minutes or, or whenever. And I think that if people realised just how uncommon that's becoming, the ability to do that, that they would be really concerned or should be. But is being in a position to make choice a position of privilege? It is. It's becoming that way. What used to be just very normal in our lives is actually becoming a position of privilege. I mean, c- certainly the choice about whether or not we go on a cruise in the, yep. in the Caribbean is a choice that's not available to everybody. Mm. Do people have a choice... So, so is your argument that everybody has a choice even if they don't? You, you only have a choice if you understand that you do. Yeah, that's, that's sort of similar to Welby Ng's argument that if you have to be empowered, then you're not empowered. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it shouldn't be that way because if you think about how life was for us as kids, if you go back to our generation and we were 11 years old, we actually had choices. We had far more choices than our kids do now. But the the world has changed so much. Okay, so think about, here. here's a really easy way to illustrate it. You are playing a game online or, you know, a computer game or an Xbox game or any other game, playing some sort of digital game. And you get to choose if you're going to go this way or that way. But actually, is that really your choice? All of that has been predetermined by the person who wrote the game. It is not your choice. And then, if you go this way, someone's going to be there with a gun. And if you go this way, someone's going to be there with a prize. So the outcome of that decision that you think you've made is also predetermined by somebody else. None of that gives you any control over the reality. And so that's become quite reflective of real life. Our kids, and and the more our kids spend time in in that digital space, the more that becomes their normal. And that bothers me too, troubles me. And the other side of that 
positivity, or is it the receptiveness to positivity? You can tell me I'm wrong on that one. Is empathy. Yeah, empathy. Um, choice. Empathy is a choice. They all they go hand in hand perfectly together. Uh, and so empathy requires you to put yourself in the position where you can view or experience something some, something from the from someone else's position but first you must be willing to do that so there's a definite choice involved in that so if we don't encourage our kids to to learn what real choice is to think themselves into a future then we also can't help them to develop those that empathy and i think empathy may be something that we're born with for some people, it's definitely, you know, some people are more naturally empathetic than others, so that is part of their character, but it is also something that we definitely learn. Can you fake it? Can you oh, yes. empathy wash? Yeah, you can empathy wash. Sociopaths empathy <laughs> wash very well. So if you look at the definition of a sociopath, one of the things they do really well is feign empathy because that's how they get people, that's how they draw people to them. But they can't do it in any sort of prolonged way. There's no there's no long legs on that one. So then you, they, they will draw people to them. It's a problem with a sociopath, why they're so terrible in relationships, because they'll draw people to them with their amazing empathy and, and, and then they can't maintain it and, and then they can sometimes become abusive. So choice and empathy mm-hmm. come together yes. in... Imagination! In Hooray! imagination! <laughs> imagination! Imagine that! You've got lots of cases of the absence of... Of imagination but taking your own advice we're taking a positive aspect view to this what do we do about it oh it's easy we just have to teach people how to think and but it's really it's difficult to teach people who are adults but it's really easy to teach kids how to think in an imaginative way and one of the simple things that we can do if we took give me a group three and four year olds and paper and pens and I'll show you how to do that it's easy sitting and saying what do you want to be when you get big and they will want to be the most fanciful amazing things or they'll want to be the most main, mundane things but that none of that matters and have them draw it and and what what's your life going to be like what sort of car are you going to drive in are you going to have a motorcycle or rocket ship are you going to sail a ship to work? are you going to swing through the trees tell me about your life and have them think their way into that future. That's how we grow imagination. We grow imagination by asking our children those sort of long-term questions and getting them to think about what does it look like. That's, that builds the blocks. But what if they want to be a fire engine or a unicorn? That's fantastic. I'd love that even more. Be a fire engine or a unicorn. Be the rocket ship. But they can't be a fire engine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they can imagine themselves being that. Actually... I know loads of three and four year old boys who who are fire engines all the time. They they run around holding a steering wheel, going real 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 while they play. They're fire engines. And it, and actually, if you think about the future of work and the the, the jobs that we're going to lose over the next you know thirty to fifty years, um, we need people who who want to be a fire engine. We need those kind of thinkers who aren't going to be bound by the rules because they're the ones who will create the new roles. How do we give people the resilience or the, the buoyancy to not let life get in the way? Or does life get in the way and we still have to have the choice and the imagination to, to be able to deal with that? Without choice and imagination, we can't deal with it. And, and that's a, an, an observation that I've made recently as well, is that it, with COVID, the kids who have got 
um, a lower level of applicable imagination can't see what the future looks like without COVID. They feel stuck in this, the boogeyman out of bed. They're constantly in fear of it. The kids who their imagination is stimulated and developed um, will pick up on the cues like there's a thing called a vaccine and that is going to make us all protected from it. The border is closed and that's having an impact on this life, but the border will be open again. The kids with imaginations are, are always open cues for positive change. They're, they're not as um, they're, they're not as controlled by fear because they can actually see that things will change. Imagination, um, it makes people less fearful. I, th- I really believe that. And getting back to social media, there's, there's been a huge rise in fear-based stories. Yeah. And, and so people are still imagining a, a, a bad outcome. I think that people who have who have not had a stimulated imagination, who can't make choice and who, who struggle with empathy, have negative experiences of life. And so any negative experience that has been projected by somebody else they just assume that that's going to be the reality because that's a continuation of the negativity that they live with positive people don't generally become indoctrinated into those sorts of ways of thinking so in practice you put imagination to you to use in you can imagine a solution to this problem and you can imagine the steps to put that into practice. Yep, you can see a way forward. You see that that, that there's that there's activity happening, and um, if you have got an imagination, you're also much more inclined to want to look backwards to understand the future, um, but not to become stuck in that in the going backwards. You're more likely to actually look for answers because you don't feel like you're you're um, standing in quicksand or sinking. So. If we were to go back to your title, turn your pages back to the title, For the Love of Imagination, the Evolution of a Social Justice Educator, hmm. where have we arrived? At the solution, which is they stimulate the imaginations of all of our children <laughs> and teach them how to think themselves into a future. And by doing so, will address the sorts of issues that, that concern you in, in yeah. social justice. Absolutely. Um, here's a, here's an interesting one. I was listening to uh, Nathan Wallace. Uh, um, it's an old Nathan Wallace article, actually, that I'd sent to a friend who's having that tough conversation with kids going to a party, going to a concert. I can't remember which concert, but it's the first time this group of boys is going away without parental supervision, and so they're having that conversation about safe sex, um, drug, and alcohol. And I sent her the Nathan Wallace RNZ interview where he said... If we as a society say we are not going to let our kids drink until they're 21, all of the problems we have with alcohol will completely disappear. There will be no family violence violence that's alcohol-based. There will be no alcohol-based car crashes. There will be all and uh, there will be no alcohol addiction. There, all of that will go with that one small decision to make change happen. And and he can he has worked through. If we choose to make it happen, not just that we choose to change the law. No, we have we to change, choose to make it happen. If we change, if we choose to change the law, nothing would actually change. Exactly. Oh, people. Oh, he says, do not let your children drink under twenty one. Their brains are being developed. Why are you purposely allowing your children to become brain damaged? Why do that? We spend all of this time and energy and effort growing our children's brains and investing so much into them, only to actually let them destroy it with alcohol. Why do we do that? Why do we make that choice? 
So we, we have got the, we know what the outcome is. We need to choose not to let that happen, but we don't. We've talked about Danella Meadows' leverage point, mm. uh, looking for points of change in a system. What's the biggest lever that you can pull on to make this happen? Do you mean like in terms of um, teaching our children to be imaginative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's you can certainly have a massive impact on your own kids yep. and the kids that live next door and down the street. Yep. But I'm, I'm imagining that you would like to have a wider impact than that. Absolutely. So my whole, like for 15 years, this whole, the whole point of my life has been to get to the position where I have the magic piece of paper that unlocks the door to get industry to change. And the change comes from this pilot, pilot program that I've been developing in my head for all these years, which is working with little children, getting them how to teaching them how to think, teaching them how to imagine, teaching them. So, okay, imagine this. You are a little dude growing up in a family with a high level of dysfunction where there are all sorts of social issues, deprivation, there's no emphasization, um, you're, you feel cared for because children will always feel cared for no matter how much is going on around them, they'll always pick up something that enables them to feel cared for but, but others looking from the outside will see that you're not being cared for well enough at all and it would be really easy for your life to just be a continuation of that pattern where you then become the next generation that raises the same way unless there is some sort of intervention which teaches you that actually that didn't have to be the way. So life will continue to happen to that child who is never given the opportunity to learn how to make real choice, how to imagine an alternative future. So there will come a time where their life splits off. I can keep going down this way or I can go this way. And no matter what is happening in that child's life, in their home environment or anything else, if they have that knowledge in their mind that I can put myself into the future and walk towards that, then they will always have that choice forever and they'll always have that skill forever. Thank you very much for joining me. We're going to go out to Martin Saxton, Caught in the Rain. In a rusted red Chevy with a heart full of glory, she left that night. Her suitcase at the door opened wide, let the cold air come in, and then she asked me for a light. Said she had some old business. Or see an old friend or maybe make a new start But the words of a reason They changed with the season And the truth burned in my heart And it blew me away And I thought I'd go crazy Cause I knew even then I was caught I'm caught in the rain again Pray to the heavens to defend me I'm caught in the rain Why the same like more rain that they send me mm -hmm. So listen to the wind for the answer Time hangs heavy on my face I run from the storm that's on its way Till I find there is no place no person, no thing I can run to No shelter I can gain from the rain Yes, I know this time is too late now Cause I'm caught in the rain again And I pray to the heavens to defend me I'm caught in the rain Why does it seem like more rain if they send me? Mm -hmm. 
Down as one horse town bar, I sing in the back room in the December night. If she comes through the doorway with a blustering wind that's too cold to forget, she looks like she knew me. The heat through me melted me down. So we sat and talked about the old days. Or any new things that we found. Talked about the days when we were so much younger and innocent. We saw it plain. We were just caught in the rain. But caught in the rain again. I pray to the heavens to defend me. Caught in the rain, was it sea? So I guess you catch me in the rain again. Ashtago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.